Good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we are delighted that you're here for the 2014 Mankin Day celebration. I'd like to start by giving a heartfelt thanks to members of the Mankin Society. If you could raise your hand, you've been here, and, well, and everybody should give them a hand. Their support throughout the years has been critical and crucial, and if it's your first time here at the Central Library for Mankin Day, this is quite an experience. It's the day when we honor and commemorate what at the Pratt Library we consider an old friend, Henry Louis Mankin. Yesterday, September 12th, would have been his 134th birthday. Ouch, someone said. <laughs> And when he was a child, Mankin visited his neighborhood branch at Hollins and Calhoun Streets. And when he grew up and became a successful writer and journalist, he used this very library that we're in today. And we believe that his legacy continues not only here in Baltimore, but across the nation. As you may know, the Pratt Library has one of the largest Mankin collections in the world. And today, and this is truly a librarian announcing something kind of exciting. Um, the library will be adding approximately 2,800 items from the Mencken collection to the catalog, previously unaccessible uh, materials that could only be found in the Mencken room and through going through an actual card catalog in the room. Now, everyone will be able to search the Pratt catalog and find books from Mr. Mankin's personal library, as well as biographies and critical works that the library has collected about him. His personal library, and if you haven't had a chance to see some of the items, is incredible because of the people he knew, worked with, and supported. You probably know he was one of the most well-known literary critics of his day, and he built a personal library that contains autographed copies from the most important authors of the period, and some of them didn't even know they were important then, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, Langston Hughes, James Joyce, Arthur Miller, and even Leon Trotsky. So the collection has first edition signed presentation copies, letters, and brief notes that will put in the books as personal messages. And all of this information through the wonders of technology, and there are some, will be available for all to see. Now, today's lecture has what we love, and we think Mr. Minkin would love, an air of suspense about it. <laughs> and we have to thank today's speaker. If you ever, and I hope there's some journalism students or, or people um, that are interested in how to give one of the craftiest interviews ever, and we just put some additional copies of City Paper. And for those of you who are not familiar from other places, um, the City Paper is known for, let's say, getting information. Uh, and exposing things. Well, they had an interview with today's speaker that just fascinated me. I read the whole thing because they tried every way till Sunday to try to get him to tell what he's going to conclude today. And at every turn he said, well, you'll hear 
on my at my lecture at two o'clock at the Pratt Library on September 13th and he tried and he tried so I can't wait to hear because from what I understand he's gonna almost wait until the last line <laughs> to tell you if you, so that's good but he is a lawyer and today we're also <laughs> sorry uh, and today is a very special day, not only because of our speaker, but the person who's going to introduce him. I am very pleased to be able to introduce the well-known Baltimore engineer and the guest scholar at the University of Baltimore School of Law, Mr. David S. Thaler. He's a collector and Mencken scholar, and he's published four books about Mr. Mencken, including The Mencken Paradox, and that's the seminal examination of whether H.L. Mencken was anti-Semitic or not. But perhaps most famously, on a previous Mencken day, he courageously produced the world premiere of The Artist, an opera by H.L. Mencken, which was widely considered to be the worst opera ever conceived. <laughs> so please welcome Mr. David Thaler. Well, thank you so very much, Dr. Hayden, for that uh, lovely introduction and for everything that you have done for the Enoch Pratt Library and for the city of Baltimore. Please give Carla a big hand. She deserves it. Now, really, what a wonderful uh, a day this is. On the uh, anniversary of uh, the 200th anniversary of the Battle of uh, Baltimore, the Blue Angels are here today. The Vice President's here. There's 45 ships uh, in port and this wonderful standing room crowd to hear an analysis of the thoughts of somebody who published his last article 66 uh, years ago. I think it's truly amazing that the Mencken legacy has really lasted all these years. But I want to ask you a question. Now suppose like Rome, that Baltimore had a pantheon for its local heroes. Whom would you install? And let's assume that the criteria for installation would be having made a lasting impact. Well surely Thurgood Marshall would be on the list, for he was the champion and the architect of the legal struggle to end state-sponsored racial discrimination in America. Now, the sentimental favorite might be William Donald Schaefer, who dominated Baltimore and Maryland politics and began the revitalization of the city. And then my favorite is a civil engineer, Dr. Abel Wallman, renowned professor at Johns Hopkins and the father of American sanitary engineering, who developed the coronation of water, probably saving tens of millions of lives worldwide. And finally, there is H.L. Mencken, who was the most important intellectual influence in America in, in the 1920s and who is largely responsible for making the Roaring Twenties roar. Now, among these luminaries, Marshall has an airport, Schaefer has a statue overlooking his beloved Inner Harbor, and Woolman, appropriately, has the Public Works Building named after him. But Mencken, well, he doesn't have anything not so much as an elementary school named in his honor. In fact, his home at 1524 Holland Street, once the most famous literary address in America, is now largely shuttered. And why is this? And I believe that somehow it's because he's become politically incorrect and has somehow been tarred with a racist taint. 
Now, at some point, Mencken skewered nearly every nationality and ethnic group, except perhaps his beloved Germans, and he certainly had many prejudices. He published six volumes of them. But was he prejudiced against African Americans? Now, our speaker today is perhaps the most qualified in America to answer this question, to explore Mencken's attitudes about race, and to determine whether Mencken was a racist or truly a champion of civil rights. One of the most brilliant men I have ever had the privilege to meet, and an eminent scholar, he is elegant of both appearance and language. He is the author of the acclaimed biography of Thurgood Marshall, Young Thurgood, The Making of a Supreme Court Justice, a graduate of Columbia Law. He was the first African-American law professor at that bastion of the Confederacy, the University of Virginia. And since 1974, he has been professor of law at the University of Maryland Law School, and actively practices with the firm of Shapiro, Scher, Guineau, and Sandler. An experienced political organizer, he was the campaign manager for Kurt Schmoke in his successful mayoral campaigns and has run numerous other campaigns, including Bill Clinton's 1992 effort in Maryland. In recent years, he has also advised African political leaders, including the former president of Madagascar, Mark Ravalomanana, and Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. He has also served as Deputy Attorney General of the United States during the Carter administration. However, there is one small blot on his otherwise extraordinary resume of which I feel I must apprise you. Unlike Mencken and me, who attended the Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, he's, he's a graduate of City College. <laughs> But please don't hold that against him. He was young. So please welcome Professor Larry Gibson. Thank you, Dave. Uh, uh, are you sure that uh, my best friend, Ron Shapiro, didn't write that introduction? Uh, as Dr. Hayden uh, can confirm, Ron and I, for many years, have <clears throat> traded introductions of each other using those kinds of superlatives. But wherever you got your sources and your materials, I very much appreciate your generous remarks. The question for today is, was H.L. Mencken a racist or civil rights champion? Now, if the question was, did H.L. Mencken use racist language? It would be an easy question. The answer would be an emphatic yes. Mencken lived in a time when, unfortunately, negative racist labels for blacks and other groups were ubiquitous. Racial epithets appeared constantly in literature, in the press, in entertainment, and in everyday conversation, and Mencken did not abstain. To the contrary, he loved words. He was what is called a philologist. He loved to play around with words and try them out, and he used all the racial pejoratives. One can find in Mencken's writings most of the offensive terms used for black people. Nigger, coon, darky, blackamoor. Mencken even invented 
some words of his own, like Nigero. A study of language, a student of language, Mencken actually researched and wrote a scholarly essay entitled Designations Given to Colored Folks that explored the history of many words applied over the centuries to people of color. Uh, reading that essay, uh, I learned uh, some words for black folks that I'd never heard and might try out when not in mixed company. <laughs> Mencken was an equal opportunity slurmonger. He did the honors for all groups. Italians, Catholics, Jews, Irish, Dutch. But his most contemptuous labels were reserved for Southern whites, whom he called crackers, lintheads, vermin, and a litany of vile names, as my mother would say, everything but a child of God. <laughs> and so, as I said at the outset, if the question, if the accusation is that Mencken used offensive racist language, he stands guilty as charged. But that is not the question. The question is, was H.L. Mencken a racist? At this point, some definitions will be helpful. For today, let us pretend that there are only two races, white people and black people, whatever those terms mean. And let us consider only racism against black people. Next, we need to define what is a racist. I define as a racist a person with one or more of the following three attributes. A racist is a person who believes that black people are inherently inferior to white people. Or a racist is a person who practices and supports discrimination against black people. Or a racist is a person who hates black people. Now, let us measure H.L. Mencken under these definitions. First, did Mencken believe that black people were inherently inferior to white people? Mencken became an adult at a time of intense attention to eugenics and so-called race science that had been spawned by 19th century classifiers of plants and, and animals. Some of these botanists and biologists had extended their concepts to people and had defined categories and rankings of races with allegedly distinctive characteristics, applying their interpretations of Darwin and Huxley. They structured a racial hierarchy with white people as superior and darker people as inferior. As Mencken reached his adulthood, the literature was full of this race science, and it popularized certain negative images 
of black people in books and magazines, in the names and the logos of products, in songs, on the radio, and in the movies. Specific negative stereotypes of black people emerged and became all too familiar. These stereotypes were the lazy, watermelon-eating, superstitious darky, the street-smart, crap-shooting slickster, the picturesque piccaninny, the lustful, menacing thug, and the loyal, faithful mammy. These caricatures appeared everywhere, and they reinforced notions that black people were lesser human beings and less intelligent than white people. These stereotypes encourage violence directed at African Americans and black communities in what were called race riots. The right to vote was taken away from blacks in most of the South. Public accommodations became segregated. The Ku Klux Klan reemerged and grew. Black people faced whippings and lynchings. So, did Mencken buy into these notions of black inferiority? Some say he did. And cite Mencken's own words as evidence. In the course of his career, Mencken said many things. He authored about 40 books, wrote more than 3,000 editorials, newspaper columns, and book reviews, and he sent more than 100,000 personal letters. Fortunately, most of Mencken's writings are available in this building as originals, in books, or, uh, or on microfilm. Over the past several months, with the assistance of Mencken Room curator Vince Fitzpatrick, I've tried to find the most offensive thing that Mencken ever said about black people. And I believe I found it. <laughs> In a 1910 book entitled Men Versus the Man, Mencken published an exchange of letters between himself and socialist Robert Reeves Lamont. One of the letters contains the statement that is most often quoted as evidence that Mencken was a racist. The statement is pretty raunchy, so, so brace yourself. Mencken wrote, quote, by careful breeding, supervision of environment and education, extending over several generations, it might be possible to make an appreciable improvement in the stock of the American Negro. But I must maintain that this enterprise would be a ridiculous waste of energy, for there is a high-class white stock ready at hand. It is inconceivable that the Negro stock, however carefully it might be nurtured, could ever even remotely approach it. The educated Negro of today is a failure, not because he meets insufferable difficulties in life, but because he is a Negro. He is, in brief, a low-caste man, 
to the manner born, and he will remain inert and inefficient until 50 generations of him have lived in civilization. And even then, the superior white race will be 50 generations ahead of him. End quote. Well, I guess that settles it, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I'm looking at Sean Yo's and Afro over there saying, like, well, why, why are we here? Let me go on out here and see these blue angels. <laughs> I mean, anyone who, who, who would write that, uh, uh, such a statement, believe that black people were inferior to white people and must be a racist. Well, if that were the end of the story, and the last thing that Mencken said about black people, one would agree. But that is not the end of the story. Mencken wrote that letter in 1910, rather early in his uh, career. He not only stopped saying things like that, but through most of his career, he said just the opposite. Mencken changed his belief about there being, quote, a, at hand, a high-class white stock. And as I will reveal, his writings became replete with statements that extolled the intelligence, character, and progress of African Americans. So what caused Mencken to change his assessment of the races. I believe that there were three overlapping developments that influenced Mencken's dramatic reversal. First, there was Mencken's intellectual growth from broader experiences and contacts. Mencken's thinking and conclusions about people were reshaped by knowledge that he acquired from traveling in the United States and abroad, from greatly expanded reading, and from contact and correspondence with an ever-widening range of people, including black intellectuals and leaders. In other words, Mencken learned and grew. In addition to this general expansion of Mencken's understanding, there was a second factor that reshaped Mencken's thinking about groups and minorities. That was World War I. Mencken was a German-American. Being German-American in the United States during World War I became quite uncomfortable especially for one who had publicly opposed the U.S. entering the war. The German language was dropped from the curriculum of many schools. German teachers were fired from faculties. Streets, buildings, and places with German names were renamed. For example, Baltimore's uh, downtown German Street became Redwood Street. German social organizations went underground. Popular German music was removed from concerts, and German foods were removed from menus. Mencken felt directly 
the effects of this anti-German wave. His newspaper columns were discontinued, and he was not allowed to print in most journals. He found himself writing mainly in the literary magazine Smart Set, and even then often under pseudonyms. Long-term friends stopped communicating. He was suspected by the U.S. government of being a German spy. His mail was opened and inspected. Mencken feared for his life. These experiences deepened Mencken's sense of himself as an ethnic, a member of a distrusted minority. He suffered, in his words, quote, the savage persecution of all opponents and critics of the war, end of quote. The United States entered World War I in 1917. The impact on Mencken was best summarized in a sentence by Charles Scruggs in his book, The Sage in Harlem. Scruggs wrote, quote, in 1917, Mencken woke up and discovered himself to be a Negro, end of quote. <laughs> Mencken had become an ethnic outsider, and he began to empathize more closely with America's longest term ethnic outsiders, the African Americans. It was during the war years and just after that Mencken discovered black intellectuals and they discovered him. It is also in those years that Mencken stepped up his aggressive counterattack against white America and white Americans. White people no longer looked so superior to him. But there was a third and perhaps more decisive factor in Mencken's ultimate rejection of white superiority. I call it his Nietzscheism. In 1910, when that horrible passage in that Lamont letter was written, Mencken was still shaping his philosophy of mankind, exploring a range of ideas including the social Darwinism that was then in vogue. But the philosophy that ultimately became dominant for Mencken was his interpretation of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Mencken actually wrote the first American interpretation of uh, Nietzsche's writings. Like Nietzsche, Mencken came to believe that mankind consisted of two groups, a small percentage of highly intelligent people, so-called superior people, and the rest of mankind, whom he believed to be ignorant, fearful, and superstitious. Mencken gave several labels to this larger group of inferior people, his most creative handle for the masses of mankind was a distortion of the French word bourgeoisie. Mencken labeled the masses the boobwoisie. <laughs> this philosophy was extended to 
to all races, and to all nationalities, with each group consisting mostly of inferior people and producing only a handful of superior people. Mencken never saw enough variation in intelligence within the masses, black or white, to be worth his attention. But to the extent he did make comparisons, Mencken's depictions of white Americans, particularly white Southerners, uh, became infinitely more negative than the things he said about the masses of black people. In his famous, and many would say infamous, 1917 essay, The Sahara of the Bosarts, by the way, that's spelled, Mencken spelled that B-O-Z-A-R-T-S, Mencken set forth his extremely low assessment of whites in the American South. In this essay, and, it's and in its 1920 expanded version, Mencken asserted that during the Civil War and immediately after, the American South became virtually devoid of whites who were superior people. He described the Southern whites who remained as, quote, a wretchedly dirty, shiftless, stupid, and rascally people, end quote. In contrast, Mencken pointed to the intelligence, character, and contributions of the Southern Negro. He stated, uh, quote, in many ways they, speaking of black Southerners, are superior to the whites against whom they are commonly pitted, end quote. Qualities that Mencken identified with black people were realism, a willingness to engage in self-criticism, professional and artistic creativity, resilience, and a sense of humor. Over the years that followed the Sahara of the Bosarts, Mencken repeatedly returned to this theme of black superiority in the South. After 1920, the worst thing that Mencken said about black people anywhere was not nearly as bad as the disdainful things he said about whites in the South and in Appalachia. Therefore, notions of white superiority just did not fit with Mencken's Nietzsche-inspired philosophy about mankind. There could be no white superiority because most white people were inferior. Mencken clearly did not think of himself as a racist. He said, quote, personally, I hate to think of any man as of a definite race, creed, or color. So few men are really worth knowing that it seems a shameful waste to let anthropoid prejudice stand in the way of free association with one who is, end quote. <laughs> so if one were to label Mencken's way of looking at mankind, one might rightly call it elitism. It was not racism. Now, that attitude did not stop Mencken from continuing to say, to use racial slangs in his writings. Sometimes they were gratuitous. Other times they appeared to have been strategic. Take, for example, an editorial in his literary journal, The American Mercury, in which the first sentence mentions the Coon Age. One reading that 
introductory sentence would naturally be repulsed and expect something uncomplimentary about black people. But the substance was just the opposite. Mencken's thesis was that most of the cultural items for which the United States had become internationally known, such as certain words, music, dances, foods, had been originated by African Americans. In other words, America had been transformed from, he said, the Rotary Age to the Coon Age. Now, I owe my understanding of this uh, technique of Mankin to my wife, Diana. I showed this passage to her. Diana explained to me that Mencken's bait and switch reminded her of what boxing champ Muhammad Ali called his rope-a-dope. <laughs> Mencken would use language suggesting that he shared negative views of black people and once the reader was hooked, he switched to his main point, positive as observations about black people. The Pittsburgh Courier, a uh, leading black newspaper, understood exactly what Mencken was up to. Its editorial about the Coon Age piece, first it called Mencken the dean of American critics, and stated, quote, here he points out what every well-informed Negro knows, that almost everything that is internationally recognized as American is derived from the dog brother, end of quote. That same Pittsburgh Courier editorial commented directly on Mencken's use of racial pejoratives. Quote, some Negroes who are overly sensitive will squirm at Mencken's free use of nicknames for them. But almost all will agree that he is performing a great service for us in vanquishing bigotry, prejudice, and ignorance so effectively. America would unquestionably be a much more livable place for the Afro-American if there were a lot more intelligent people like Mencken." End of quote. Another example of this rope-a-dope was a 1917 essay that he wrote in his first literary magazine, The uh, Smart Set. Mencken wrote the title in Latin, but translated it meant the Ethiop can change his skin. Throughout the essay, Mencken inserted, inserted racial pejoratives, coon, darky, negro, as if he intended to share some negative impressions of black people. But the message of the article ridiculed American whites, pointing out how they had been repeatedly outsmarted and outperformed by the Southern Negro, who, the Southern Negro who, quote, has been making fast and superior progress, not merely in education, but in competence, in self-confidence, in wealth, uh, because in all that is essential and lasting, he has shown better progress than the Southern whites, end quote. One just has to notice how these observations were in direct contradiction to the uh, assessments and predictions seven years earlier. The black intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois saw through Mencken's name-calling charade. 
Du Bois called that particular essay that had been mentioned a, quote, delicious, end of quote, piece of writing, with the racial epithets thrown, uh, sprinkled in, quote, to prove himself the Southern gentleman, end quote. <laughs> that was Du Bois' interpretation of it. Now, I do not want to give the impression that Mencken completely cleaned up his act and became post-racial. He continued to say noxious things about groups of people, including African-Americans. His diary, which caused so much controversy when it was released in 1989, contained a statement about black women that got much attention. It certainly riled up the sisters. Mencken wrote, quote, it is impossible to talk anything resembling discretion or judgment to a colored woman, end of quote. <laughs> now, I must confess that I said almost the same thing <laughs> on, on more than one occasion. But, 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 but I guess there's some things that a white guy can't say. <laughs> But even here, the context is important. Mencken was complaining in this diary entry that earlier that day, his housekeeper, Mrs. Denby, whom he greatly admired and uh, respected, had ignored his warnings about a heavily waxed floor and had fallen and injured herself. So as bad as what he wrote sounds, in context, it was a quite a benign statement. I should point out that sometimes, sometimes, uh, men can discuss the racial issue without first horsing around. On those occasions, he usually referred to African Americans as the darker brother or my colored brother. I found it fascinating, almost humorous, how Mencken at some times sounded like a black nationalist. In addition to repeatedly returning to the theme of black superiority that he had begun developing in the, the Sahara of the Bosots, Mencken encouraged young black writers to take pride in their blackness rather than trying to copy whites. He urged black writers to use more satire in describing whites. Quote, the white man, it seems to me, is extremely ridiculous. He looks ridiculous even to me, a white man myself. To a Negro, he must be a hilarious spectacle indeed. <laughs> Why hasn't that spectacle been better described, end quote. Make and encourage black, uh, caution to black leaders against putting too much emphasis in trying to please whites. He criticized Booker T. Washington claiming that, quote, the most Washington could imagine was a Negro almost as good as a white man. According to Mencken, quote, what the Negro needs is leaders who can and will think black. Mencken was strongly in favor of blacks using self-defense in response to violence. After one, right, one race riot, Mencken wrote to a black leader, quote, what the inciting cause of the current riot uh, 
may be is hard to determine. But it's easy to see the familiar liking of the low-class white man for a chance to be cruel with huge odds on his side. He is by nature a gang fighter. He fights in operations that allow him to without risk. Fighting back changes the scheme. Once he is convinced that chasing Negroes is dangerous, he will stop. End of quote. <laughs> Make it urge blacks to be resilient and persistent. Quote, the advanced wing of Negroes must be prepared to break their backs at the oars. They will find it lonesome in their little skiff and often dangerous. They will be tempted more than once to turn back. But no race, I believe, ever gets anywhere so long as it permits itself to think of turning back. It must navigate its own course in fair weather and foul, carrying all arms and ready for any combat." End of quote. Those were not the words of a man who believed that black people were inherently inferior to white people. So let's turn to my second definition of a racist. Did Mencken discriminate against black people? I have not found any examples where Mencken personally discriminated against someone because they were black or supported or encouraged racial discriminatory acts. Of course, he lived in a southern city with its structural racial segregation. But Mencken had many encounters with African Americans at all levels. And they're often mentioned in his writings. It does not appear that Mencken treated black people less decently than he treated white people. In his writings, Mencken consistently advocated that all persons be treated equally, irrespective of race. A repeated theme of his was, quote, what the Negro race needs most is a fair chance in the world, a square deal in its efforts to rise, end quote. But let us look beyond words. Let's focus on actions. One reliable means of assessing a person is to review how that person conducts themselves in matters important to them. Most revealing are the choices a person makes when they have options and something important at stake. With Mencken, that was most clear with his literary journal, The American Mercury, which he edited from 1924 to 1933. Here he had the power to choose which writers to publish the power to discriminate. At a time when other mainstream journals would not print items by black writers, Mencken opened up to them the pages of the American Mercury. When Mencken began American Mercury, he was already known among black writers and leaders, due in large part to the Sahara on the Beaux-Art that had been widely circulated in the black community. Mencken had corresponded with some black leaders since 1917, particularly James Weldon Johnson, the national head of the NAACP, 
Johnson's assistant and successor as NAACP head, Walter White, and W.E.B. Du Bois, the editor of The Crisis, the magazine published by the uh, national NAACP. Mencken invited Johnson to submit an essay for inclusion in the very first issue of American Mercury. Johnson did not get the piece in on time, but Du Bois did have an essay a couple of issues later. American Mercury became a place where black writers could boldly discuss racial issues. The American Mercury under H.L. Mencken printed more works by black writers than all the other major white journals combined. Mencken called Pittsburgh Courier journalist George Schuyler, quote, the best columnist of any race now in practice in the United States, end of quote. He tried unsuccessfully to get the Baltimore Sun to hire Schuyler. George Schuyler published nine pieces in the American Mercury, more than any other writer, white or black. James Weldon Johnson published five pieces. Walter White published a report about 42 lynchings that he had investigated. Langston Hughes had two poems. In reviewing a, a manuscript for a possible inclusion in the uh, American Mercury. What mattered to Mencken was the thoughtfulness of the ideas and the quality of the writing. He advised black intellectuals to dispel those stereotypes and to write about a wide range of topics related to the black community. Politics, occupations, travel, economics, language, history. Black writers found Mencken to be tough-minded and non-patronizing. They sought his advice on topics to write about, and he assisted them in finding publishers for their books. Mencken did not favor timid pieces from black authors. Instead, he gave preference to essays that challenged the establishment and were provocative. <laughs> du Bois's essay, The Dilemma of the Negro, published in the American Mercury, predicted violent conflict between blacks and whites in America. Fully aware of what uh, Du Bois had written, Mencken alerted friends that the upcoming of the American Mercury would have what he called, quote, some subversive stuff, end quote. Mencken was almost ecstatic in his review of Al Lane Locke's 1926 book entitled The New Negro. Locke, the first black Rhodes Scholar and a leader of the Harlem Renaissance, had published a set of bold and provocative light, uh, essays. Mencken cheered, quote, the Negroes who contribute to this dignified and impressive volume show no sign of being sorry they are Negroes. They take a fierce pride in it. For the first time, one hears the imposing doctrine that in more than one way the Negro is superior to the white man. Here's a Negro of a quite new sort, male and female, who's coming upon the scene um, uh, in easy grace and not at all uh, flustered by good society, end quote. Men can also encourage white writers to submit to the American Mercury uh, essays related to, to race. Between 1924 
1933, the American Mercury published 54 articles about African Americans. Half of them by black writers and half of them by white writers. So under my second definition, H.L. Mencken did not discriminate against black people in either his personal or professional affairs. He was not a racist on that score. Let us turn to our second definition of a racist. Did Mencken hate black people? Unfortunately, there are people who we must call racist because blacks just get under their skin. They may not even know why. They just don't like black people. Well, what about H.L. Mencken? Did he hate black people? The simple answer is there is no evidence that he did. Now, we all know that Mencken disliked many things and many kinds of people. And he made no efforts to hide his dislikes. He disliked Puritans, religious fundamentalists, most politicians, especially presidents, chiropractors, the Ku Klux Klan, the list goes on. In fact, what Mencken liked is a fairly short list. <laughs> he liked books, music, food, beer, really smart people, and what he called decency. Decency was a really important word for Mencken. He called it the cornerstone of a good society. He said, quote, by this common decency, I mean the habit uh, in the individual of viewing with tolerance and charity the acts and ideas of other individuals, the habit that makes a man a reliable friend, a generous opponent, and a good citizen, end of quote. Mencken said a lot of things about black people, but he never said that they were not decent or that he didn't like them. To the contrary, Mencken showed a genuine interest in the black experience in America. He called himself, quote, a sincere friend of the colored people, in the quote. But perhaps the most reliable indication of Mencken's attitude towards black people is what blacks who were his contemporaries said about him. For more than 40 years, I have taught a course in law school called Evidence. This course gives great weight to what we call character evidence and character witnesses. The opinions of, of, of a person held by their contemporaries derive from direct contact over a period of time. Fortunately, we have the benefit of several Mencken character witnesses. Statements about Mencken by black writers and leaders who had direct contact with him. These were people who knew what racism looked like and had no hesitancy in exposing racism when they saw it. James Weldon Johnson, the author of the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, corresponded with Mencken from 1917 to 1937. He said, quote, several times Mr. Mencken has written about the race question 
And although he has no special interest in the Negro's rights and wrongs, he always writes on the Negro's side because he sees that, that he because he sees that on that side lies the truth. In the quote, W. B. Du Bois, the author of *The Souls of Black Folks*, wrote, "Quote: There's no question of H. L. Mencken's attitude toward Negroes. He is calmly and judiciously fair." In the quote. Howard Law School, uh, Howard University Dean Kelly Miller, a frequent contributor to black journals, wrote, quote, from the very beginning of his literary career, Mr. Mencken has given much attention to the Negro question. He neither loves nor hates the Negro. He has no propaganda for or against. He undertakes to describe the Negro, not to reform him. Form him. Like Shakespeare, he does not make the original, but holds up the mirror to nature, in the quote. Black newspaper publishers and editors were especially sophisticated and well-read. Their racism detectors, detectors, were fine-tuned. It is insightful that materials by and about Mencken appeared frequently in the Amsterdam News, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Afro-American, and other black-owned newspapers. Occasionally, an editorial columnist or letter to the editor criticized Mencken's atheism and his opposition to prohibition. But they did not accuse him of being a racist or using words that would have been used back then. They never said that Mencken was prejudiced against colored people. Dr. Carl Murphy, publisher of the Baltimore Afro-American and a leader of the national and local NAACP, corresponded with Mencken for two decades. Their letters back and forth exhibit mutual respect. In one 1926 letter, Murphy invited Mencken to address all 40 employees of the Afro at their weekly staff meeting. No one was more race conscious than W.E. Du Bois as he selected what items would appear in the crisis magazine. He would not publish in the National Journal of the NAACP material from anyone he believed was not a friend of black folks. Mencken had two pieces in the crisis. In a 1929 essay, he warned against the emergence of a non-helpful black bourgeoisie. In a 1934 essay entitled Notes on Negro Strategy, Mencken was kind of pessimistic about the near future progress of uh, African Americans. Mencken was more than a neutral, had more than a neutral, dispassionate interest in the African-American experience in America. He studied and wrote about black language, literature, cooking, music, art. He read black newspapers and maintained running correspondence with black Americans. Mencken was much more than a casual observer of his darker brother. H.L. Mencken certainly did not hate black people. 
So my answer to the first part of our question is clear. H.L. Mencken did not believe that black people were inferior to white people, did not discriminate or support discrimination uh, against black people, and did not hate black people. That leaves us to the second part of the question. Was Mencken a civil rights champion? First, Mencken would have denied that he was anybody's champion. <laughs> he railed against reformers and people on missions. He criticized moral crusades. He claimed, quote, my one purpose in writing is absolutely not to reform people, but simply to provide a kind of catharsis for my own thoughts. They worry me until they are set forth in words. This may be a kind of insanity, but in all events, it is free of moral purpose. End of quote. To which I say, BS. <laughs> I do not believe Mencken believed that, and he certainly didn't practice that. Mencken certainly undertook reform missions. For example, he undertook a mission in the 1920s to end prohibition. He fought against government censorship, and he was an intrepid champion for free speech. Mencken waged many battles with specific real-world objectives. Mencken may not have considered it his, it, it is his mission to look out for black people. Civil rights may not have been high in his priority of issues, but he did, on more than one occasion, fight for the civil rights of African Americans. For example, Mencken waged a relentless campaign against the Ku Klux Klan and against lynching. He wrote and published several editorials and columns attacking lynching, especially after the 1931 lynching of Matthew Williams in Cambridge, Maryland, and the 1933 lynching of George Armwood in Princess Anne. Mencken's efforts took personal courage. His writings led to threats and warnings for him not to set foot on the eastern shore of Maryland. One of the few times that Mencken ever admitted to changing his mind about anything was when he reversed his thinking about whether there should be a federal law against lynching. His original position was that this violence should be handled at the state level. But after the 1931 and 33 lynchings in Maryland, he concluded that a federal law was needed. Mencken then testified before the U.S. Congress in support of the Costick and Wagner anti-lynching bill. His participation increased the media attention uh, that the hearing received. Mencken's testimony on February 14, 1935, was the only time he ever testified in Congress. Letters between uh, Mencken and NAACP leader Walter White show that they collaborated on their respective testimonies and engaged in other coordinated efforts trying to persuade Maryland's two U.S. senators to support the anti-lynching bill. The proposed legislation wasn't adopted because it was fiercely opposed by Southern senators and not pushed 
by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But Mencken's efforts were not just detached journalistic commentary. He waged an active campaign for a specific reform. Another example of Mencken's active involvement was his support for the desegregation of the University of Maryland School of Law and the admission of Donald Gaines Murray in 1935. I had known for several years that Mencken had uh, written a column uh, supporting uh, Murray's admission uh, to the bar. I mentioned the column in my book about uh, Thurgood Marshall. But while engaged in uh, research uh, for that book, I learned about the circumstances surrounding that column. The University of Maryland Law School suit was Thurgood Marshall's first major case. Historians of the civil rights movement call it the first step on the road to Brown versus Board of Education uh, because it is the first time that a judge in any state ordered the desegregation of an educational facility. Mencken's column came at a key point. Just after the university had appealed the judge's order, before the appeal was heard and before Mary began classes. At the Library of Congress, I came across a letter from NAACP head Walter White that he had sent to Thurgood Marshall. White informed Marshall that he had been corresponding with Mencken during the case, including sending him the various court filings, and that Mencken had just alerted White that his very next column would be about the Murray case. That advance notice gave Marshall and the local NAACP time to plan to get maximum benefit out of the uh, Mencken column, which they proceeded to do. Juanita Jackson, later Juanita Jackson Mitchell, then a young organizer for the NAACP, wrote to Walter White excited, quote, Mencken has written a, an article on the University of Maryland case about which everybody is talking. I suppose you've seen the article. That was good strategy on your part. Congratulations and thanks. It will help us in our membership drive, end quote. Well, of course, White already knew Mencken had alerted him. Actually, Mencken said, sent a copy of his column to James Weldon Johnson. By then, he had retired as head of the NAACP. Johnson complimented uh, Mencken on the column and called it, quote, a great blow for law, uh, order, and justice, and for the establishment of democracy in this great union of ours, end quote. After discovering this active collaboration between Mencken and Walter White, I wanted to learn more about Mencken and the black leaders. As I explored, I discovered extensive correspondence between Mencken and African-American leaders discussing strategies and in some cases coordinating their respective actions to be of maximum benefit to the civil rights agenda. The Baltimore branch of the NAACP clearly regarded Mencken to be a friend and a supporter. Juanita Jackson sent Mencken a letter inviting him to take out a membership in the NAACP. 
Mencken's letter in response declining the invitation is quite revealing. Quote, Dear Miss Jackson, thank you for your letter. As you know, I am greatly interested in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and have often written articles in support of its various projects. Mr. Johnson and Mr. White are old friends, and we exchange ideas constantly. Unluckily, I am thoroughly convinced that it is unwise for men engaged in active daily journalism to join associations of any sort. I've had a rule against doing so for many years, and I hesitate to break it now. Thus, I fear I'd better not come in, better not come in. Sincerely, H.L. Mencken, end of quote. That was in 1935. To understand how Mencken never stopped his opposition to racial discrimination, I need, we need only consider that the very last item that Mencken ever wrote before his disabling stroke in November 1948 was another column protesting racial discrimination. In it, Mencken castigated the policy of the Baltimore City Parks Board under which black and white tennis players were not permitted to play together on the same tennis courts in um, Druid Hill Park. After millions of written words, the last exaltation that H.L. Mencken wrote was, quote, it is high time that such relics of Ku Kluxery be wiped out of Maryland, end quote. It is high time that such relics of Ku Kluxery be wiped out of Maryland. That statement could just as well have been written by my personal hero, Thurgood Marshall. In fact, it sounds like the kind of words that Thurgood would have used. But it was written by that other Baltimorean, H.L. Mencken. You've been very patient and have listened to me for quite a while, so I imagine that now you want to hear my bottom line conclusion. <laughs> Was H.L. Mencken a racist or civil rights champion? I've reviewed what Mencken said over the years. I've considered what he did in his personal affairs and professional life. And I've given much weight to the opinions of people who knew him, especially black intellectuals, leaders, and newspaper people. My final and firm conviction is that H.L. Mencken was not a racist and that H.L. Mencken was consistently a civil rights advocate and occasionally a civil rights champion. Thank you. Now, I'm going to take... I'm going to take some questions. Before doing so, a few people I must thank. First, Dr. Carla Hayden, you and the Enochrat Library are national treasures. Thank you. 
Thank, thank you for the hospitality that you've, that you've shown to me on this and other occasions. I especially want to mention Judy Cooper, whose idea it was for me to deliver this lecture, her assistant, Teresa Edmonds, and Jack Young, who continues his amazing artistry in the display windows out front. Thank you to the Mencken Society for going along with Judy's suggestion to invite me. Vince Fitzpatrick, the curator of the Mencken one. Where is Vince? Okay, the curator is a walking encyclopedia of Mencken knowledge. Thank you, Vince, for your many hours of assistance and guidance. Thank you, David, David Thaler, for your introduction today and for sharing your thoughts and materials from your own valuable personal Mencken collection. Marion Elizabeth Rogers spent many hours digging through her files, finding materials for me, and became my sounding board for ideas and themes. Please purchase her new book. <laughs> Marion will be signing her book at the reception that follows here on the second floor after the program. And as you can tell, I drew liberally on the writings of other Mencken scholars, some of whom are here today. Thank you for your valuable assistance, and please forgive me for any substantive errors in my presentation. My best friend, Ron Chaparro, my colleague, Tanya uh, Banks, my permanent research assistant, Dolores Mack, and my wife listened to and improved drafts of this lecture. They, that, that, that's my permanent team. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Diana, for tolerating my obsession with Mencken this past few months as I cluttered the surfaces of our home uh, with Mencken materials. I also thank Thurgood Marshall, who lately must have felt somewhat neglected. And I promise to get back to work on my second Marshall book after today. But, but I also point out that I will be signing my first Marshall book after the reception. So, Alan, that, that's my publicist. I, did, did I work that plug in okay? Okay. I wish to acknowledge uh, the presence of the uh, new dean of the University of Maryland School of Law, uh, Dean Donald Tobin. Welcome back to Maryland. <laughs> Finally, I want to thank everyone is here. I don't know what's going on in your minds. I mean, this, on this beautiful, well, that's a little rainy day, <laughs> but, but you, I mean, this is the national, well, you could be lots of other places. My personal friends, uh, my law uh, uh, school colleagues, uh, my law partners and students, their colleagues in historical preservation. I see some of my Facebook family and members of the public. Uh, uh, yes, you could be many other places, um, uh, but you're here. I don't take it for granted, and I very, very much uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Now. 
So if you have questions for Professor Gibson, um, we'd really like for you to come over here so I don't have to run around the auditorium. Thank you. This is the dangerous part. I prepared. Now you got these 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 Mencken scholars. So okay. Yes, sir. I want to congratulate you on a most magnificent presentation, and I charge you with. I'd like to charge you with one task, and the rest of you with another. Number one, you don't you neglect Marshall one more time, and go and give this speech to the National uh, Speech Club in in Washington. National Press Club, and thereby, I guarantee you, they will correct the injustice of having removed Mencken's name from the from the building in the National Press Club. That's your job, and I respectfully <laughs> give you that. Now, now to the rest of you, I admonish you, nay, I even order you to join the Mencken Society because this is it's a it's a great great place to be together. And it's something that you can, you, we can again uh, advance the knowledge of this most magnificent writer. And sir, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Whoops. I think this would be a good uh, comparative analysis with Mark Twain's background as well, discussing his transition as well. But I wondered about anti-Semitism, which you did not cover, if you have any words on, of wisdom there as well. No, I, I'm going to deal with this one topic uh, today. <laughs> I'm going to stay with, with, my, uh, with this one. There's certainly, there are people who have written books and other materials about other issues, uh, including uh, anti-Semitism, but that's not one that people here are much more knowledgeable than me. We haven't touched on something more important than anything you've dealt with here, which is to say baseball. Mencken was a baseball fan. Yes. Westbrook Pegler, a very conservative columnist, said that segregation in baseball was the craziest wrong in America. Did Mencken ever speak to the segregation of the national game? I there, Ask Mark Mary. I, I, I simply don't know uh, whether he specifically addressed baseball or not, but... but uh, Aaron Rodgers would know. Did he? Um, actually, uh, Mencken was a big baseball fanatic when he was a child. Uh, he was younger when he was growing up. He lost his interest in baseball later on in life. I haven't come across any articles that were specifically talking about segregation and sports. Okay. Uh, I'm sure after the talk was talked here, it's something that maybe he commented on, maybe in some letters. I haven't seen let me be clear who this is. Uh, this is Marion Elizabeth Rogers. Please stand. Uh, her, her. When I think I, I've at least looked at and have read just about every consequential biography of, 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 of Mencken, and without a doubt, hers is simply the best. That's the biography, but... There are two other books. There's an assembly of materials, uh, which is um, 
and, and there's a new uh, book, this, which is uh, a kind of a condensation, I think, of the, of the trilogy of the, the biogra biography that he broke down into three, uh, uh, to three volumes. That's the book that's, that's just actually, if you get it today, you'll get it ahead of its release because it's technically not even going to be released until next month. So uh, buy uh, Marion's book today. You, you, you've got it. Uh, what comes before first edition? This is pre-first edition. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're both going to be, the reception is going to be on the floor there, and we're going to be sitting next to each other signing our books, and you can please, uh, this, this is the real knowledgeable Mencken person. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you for the uh, lecture. Um, well, I, I buy your argument, but um, Mencken's employer at the Baltimore Sun at the time was writing a lot of anti-segregation, um, you know, opinions and editorials for what was happening in the city. Did he ever chafe with the people he worked with that you know of? He wrote his columns. The, the I, I, I guess it varies. I, I, one that I, something I was going to mention in the speech, but I had to shorten the speech. That I thought was a fascinating uh, episode. The uh, black poet, uh, County Cullen, uh, came to Baltimore to read uh, his poetry for a business um, organization at the Rennert Hotel. Uh, when he showed up, they wouldn't let him read there, and they, they tried to find some other place, and he ultimately they paid him this fee, and he went back and never, um, never read the poem, uh, read the poems. Uh, when Mencken found out about it, um, he, uh, he wrote to the, to the Sun and insisted that they write about it, he threatened to, to sort of uh, uh, embarrass the, uh, 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 the organization. Um, and uh, so there are times when he dealt with racial issues in his own column. And I've seen a f some correspondence, but there are people who are more aware. He's sort of writing to, I think it's Johnson, a management there, about some racial issues. But most of what he dealt with, he dealt through his own editorials, his own columns, his own uh, 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 books, but but he was a prolific letter writer. The, but the, the, the Conte, y'all want to hear a poem, don't you? Um, Conte Cullen uh, wrote a poem about that Baltimore incident, and he um, he he called it incident, and uh, he changed the facts. He it, it, he made it a little kid speaking, but uh, uh, the poem goes like this. Once riding in old Baltimore, heart filled, head filled with glee, I saw a Baltimorean keep looking straight at me. Now I was eight and very young, but he was no whit bigger. So I smiled, but he poked out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until September of all the things that happened there. That's all that I remember. <laughs> That was an incident that Mencken, I think Mencken inspired that poem because he wrote to County Collin about this. He said, what happened? And he just, anyway. Yes. First, first of all, I'd like to say it's great seeing you again. I haven't seen you, Larry, and, or I haven't seen you standing still <laughs> in a, a, a long time. Uh, there are some words that were used here today that, uh, you know, words like bigot and racists and uh, racism and uh, whatnot. And I just wanted to uh, get you to comment on the use of those words. 
Because it's my understanding that. I'm defined. That's why I defined racism. Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to be real clear what I regard as a, a, for, for purpose of this. Right. I, so mine. People who may define racism differently. That's my, what I define as a racist. Yeah. My understanding mm-hmm. uh, of a bigot is you can be a bigot without being a racist. But you can't be a racist without being a bigot. And the, the, and my understanding is that when you put that ISM on the end of that word, that's what gives it the power. The, the, a person who is able to target and sanction another person's livelihood or what have you uh, is a racist because mm-hmm. he has the power to sanction. But if he's uh, just blowing off his mouth and saying things and and making anti uh, uh, or making racist statements, he can just be a bigot without any power, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not to be taken seriously. Right. Right. I like I your comments the word on bigot, that. And I define how I'm using racist. There are probably other people who could give a different definition, and I have no problem with that. So that's why at the outset I defined what I meant by those three categories um, persons who believe that black people are inferior. People discriminate against black people, people who don't like black people. Now, I'm sure there are other definitions, and I won't quibble with anybody about that. But for my purposes of my thinking this through, that's how I define a racist. Any other questions? You want to just stand up and let's make this the last one. I thank you for that lecture because um, I had just recently come across Lincoln's writings. I thought I was going to share them with my students at Morgan State University. And I came first to that 1910. Oh, yeah. And I was, oops. <laughs> and then I saw that you were giving this lecture, and I wanted to know more about Sage Baltimore. So I'm very grateful for it. And I wonder, what are you going to do with this wonderful material now? Will it become another book? No, I, I'm going back to my day job. Uh, I'm teaching at the law school, and my secondary job was finishing up a book about Thurgood Marshall. I've enjoyed this. It's been fascinating, but I think Mencken is pretty well covered. Thurgood needs a little more attention. <laughs>